Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Anthony Painter. I'm Chief Research and Impact Officer at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's event. We're facing big questions about the kind of society and economy we need and want. Um, Technological and demographic change, economic insecurity and climate crisis are intensifying inequality, the need to see cohesion, change, regeneration, indeed levelling up, has never been more urgent. So how do we move forward? Um, I'm very pleased to welcome Sophia Parker and James Plunkett, who are very well placed to explore these critical, very large questions. Um, Sophia Parker um, has recently taken up post as Director of Emerging Futures at the Joseph Rantry Foundation. She was the founder and former CEO of the amazing Little Village, which supports young families and young parents, a London-based charity that works to tackle child poverty. And she's held roles in central government and at think tanks, including the Resolution Foundation and Demos. James Plunkett has worked for over a decade at the heart of public policy. In the late 2000s, um, he worked at 10 Downing Street when the full scale of the digital revolution started to make itself felt. He has since spent 10 years grappling with the social ramifications of economic change. His first book, End State, and a very good reader is too, was published in June this year. And we'll be using this book as a jumping off point for our discussion today. So thank you for joining us, James and Sophia. James, can I start with you? Um, and a theme of the conversation today is very much um, sort of emerging futures. Um, Sophia's role looks at this in um, some depth. Your, your book, I, I think, is very much around the theme of uh, emerging uh, futures. And, and James, you, you see a sort of untamed beast in new technologies. I think it's probably fair to describe, but you may even use that metaphor, I think, in the in the opening passages of the book. And in fact, this sort of paradigm shift that you see. I mean, can you br- briefly outline for us the nature of this beast and, and why it needs urgent taming? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, it's a big question. So I, I suppose the book is um, an attempt to sort of diagnose the mess, the mess that we're in and, and be as kind of um, specific as I could be about the nature of that mess, if that makes sense. And I think... Um, so the, the argument that runs through the book is this idea that the economy, um, in essence, has has changed quite decisively from from it, from its form, if you like, in the twentieth century, um, and that that is becoming clearer with every passing with every passing month. Um, call it what you want, but kind of I, I kind of summarise it as kind of digital capitalism, this kind of newly emergent form of capitalism, which looks uh, qualitatively different to the form that we grew used to in the in the kind of previous um, century. And I guess the um, the view is that actually a lot of the problems we're experiencing now are, uh, arise from the fact that we haven't reformed the state with the same kind of radicalism. So if you like, we're trying to sort of govern a 21st century economy with a 20th century um, state. And as you say, the metaphor I use in the book is this idea that you know, for governing is like riding a very powerful creature, the creature being capitalism. Um, and... Um, you know, we learn as, as a society, we learn over time how to get better at that, how to steer capitalism, how to harness it for good, how to steer it in healthy directions. Um, uh, but then the, then the creature, if you like, changes. And that's what we're seeing at the moment is this kind of morphing of capitalism from one form to another. Um, and we don't know how yet to ride this new version of capitalism. And, you know, as, as I say, kind of, um, it, it, it's, it's kind of emerging for our eyes. 
Um, I think we're sort of starting to see the very earliest signs of what what a new type of government might look like. I'm sure we can um, unpack that a bit more. Um, but it's kind of um, you know, it's it's kind of represented by for me by this kind of mounting sense of social problems that we just haven't been able to solve. Um, and I'm sure we can unpack these more as well. So the problems around the gig economy, problems around um, burnout, for example, kind of digital burnout that so many people are experiencing. Uh, problems around tech monopolies. How do we deal with these huge new monopolies like Amazon and Google? Um, and this kind of sense that there are, there's a mounting set of problems in the intray uh, and the kind of tools that we inherited, the policy tools from the 20th century, aren't, aren't capable of solving those problems. And so we'll need need new tools, new ways of riding this beast if we're going to get back on top of things. Brilliant, thank you. Um, and, and we will come back to the conversation around reform of the state um, in, uh, a, little, uh, a little later. Um, so if I listen to James, how do you, do you see the emerging challenges uh, we face? I mean, James obviously has a sort of economic account around changes in capitalism and underlying technology that's, that's driving that. But do you see the nature of the challenges with society facing maybe being, being wider, or, or do you think they are, they are situated within that economic account? Well, I mean, I suppose, um, I, I mean, I, I love James's book. And actually, I think one, one of the things that um, I got enormous pleasure from was the sense of hope and possibility that uh, James managed to convey alongside the kind of diagnosis of the problems. And, and I think that's something really important I hope we can come back to. Um, I think a lot of what he talks about in the book is, is absolutely right. And I suppose thinking about uh, my time at Little Village and supporting kids uh, across the capital, um, what we saw was those big macro problems kind of ripped into family experience. Um, the difficulties of juggling multiple jobs, uh, uncertain hours, not enough hours, um, you know, in two parent families where both parents are working and not being able to make ends meet. Um, the kind of psychological and emotional impact of, of those things, um, as well as the kind of economic impact um, all feel very important. I suppose the other thing I would add, if we're, if we're thinking about kind of what are the challenges we face, um, I mean, you know, climate crisis is the other one. And I think that actually we really need to build a, a, a clearer account of how economic, social and uh, kind of ecological justice are all quite need to be knitted together much more explicitly. Um, and I guess it relates to what James's book argues around the, the kind of tools we have, the 20th century tools we have to solve these economic challenges are not fit for purpose. And I think that's certainly true in a world where, you know, we cannot ignore climate crisis or just kind of put it in the box called green issues that someone else is going to deal with. Everything has to be informed by that. Absolutely. And so, in essence, you know, we, we've got a story of, of, of a changing economy um, and how that feeds into um, people's economic lives, including their, their, their work. We've got this, this macro and all-encompassing challenge um, of uh, climate crisis um, and uh, wider ecological strains um, that are coming to bear on, on societies across I wonder if there's a third one as well. And there's something around the nature of public discussion and discourse, which is changing. I don't know whether the sort of digital technologies are part of this. Um, yeah, it's been sort of you know termed uh, culture wars. I don't know whether that's the right way of, of, of framing it. Polarization or tribalism. 
But it seems to be very difficult to have um, public conversations where people feel like they're speaking with the same sort, sort of core of information, the same language, that they're, they're leaning into problems in exactly the same ways. And so there are democratic challenges, it seems, uh, around this. So actually, when it comes to sort of moving forward the policy agenda and responding to some of these challenges and meeting these big global challenges, we, we, we seem to be tripping ourselves up a bit um, as we're focusing on each other rather than the challenges ahead. Do you think that's, that's fair, James? Yeah, I, yeah, I think that I think that's right, and I think um, it's interesting when you look back through history. Some of that is quite familiar. So I became quite um, writing the book. I became fascinated by the Industrial Revolution, and uh, um, in a way, how similar some of this was. So things like the public mood, for example, this sense of kind of exasperation. As far you talked about, kind of how these problems manifest in people's lives. It's fascinating when you read the letters and diaries from the kind of mid nineteenth century just the sense of absolute exasperation at, at elites who were failing to solve these self-evident problems. And at the time, problems were things like, you know, sewage building up on the banks of the Thames and people writing these letters to the Times newspaper saying, how on earth can, how on earth can the parliament, can parliament not get a grip on some of these problems? So I think some of that sense of, you know, elite, sort of feeling like elites live on a different planet or, or somehow it's the sense of a rising frustration is familiar and obviously the emergence of populism as a the result of that i think is familiar from that time as well um uh, but i also think is the kind of um democratic mechanisms themselves become outdated at points in history like this and it is not coincidence that the many significant democratic reforms followed on the back of the industrial revolution and because those prior mechanisms proved to be just completely incapable of of kind of governing with legitimacy an industrial society and I think in, yeah, in, in some similar ways, but in some different ways, we're seeing a similar thing play out now where some of those mechanisms that worked before maybe, um, or at least kind of serve their purpose, are just kind of breaking down, as you say, in this, in this strange new digital environment. That's interesting. So by when it comes to sort of leading into some of those, those big long-term challenges that you were, you, you were describing, and, and, and James has told me his book is 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 hopeful and optimistic. It's grounded, but it's hopeful and optimistic. But do do you see that there's a challenge here to get get us as a, if you like a a political community to focus on you know the longer term, you know the 10, 15, 20, 50 years hence, which we have to do um, if if we are to prepare ourselves and and you know avert disasters of different types. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I guess. Um, it's very, it's very difficult. Certainly, you know, thinking about uh, tackling poverty, which is, you know, kind of the field that I've, I've really worked in um, for the last decade or so. Um, you know, the, 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 the immediate manifestations of that issue are so urgent and pressing uh, that it's very, very difficult to say, do you know what, we're not going to worry too much about that and focus on the future. I mean, you know, it's, it's a kind of tightrope we need to walk between kind of alleviating the, the most immediate effects. Uh, of inequality with trying to tackle the kind of things that are leading to it in the first place. But I would say, I would argue that we, um, we do need to do some rebalancing. We need to create uh, some more spaces, some more investment to think about that longer term. We have been overly focused on, on the present. Um, that said, I mean, I think it's, you know, thinking just about, about what James was saying around um, the, the, the kind of public mood uh, and attitude around this. I mean, I think, you know, as ever in times of transition, 
there's a sense of people being lost and unanchored of these things that we've held close to us, no longer offering the stability and certainty and security that perhaps they once did. Um, and in that context, doing this kind of more futures-facing, long-term work, um, I think we need to be really mindful of the way that we are involving many voices in that work, rather than it just being a kind of right, well, uh, you know, the policymaking community is going to kind of shift from, you know, the big thing around let's redesign our services and think about service design and let's move to the next new thing, which is kind of collective imagination, imagining our futures. Um, actually, I think we really need to be thinking about when we're talking about uh, more uh, futures focused work, whose voices are in those debates and who is best placed to do that work? Because often it's the people who've been um, least well served by the status quo who might have the most to say about those futures. So thinking about how we create those spaces for more long-term work alongside the work to tackle the immediate um, causes and consequences, I think is really important. I think that's, that's absolutely spot on. Maybe we'll come back to that uh, a bit bit later as well. I and mean, I think it's, you could even go a, a step further on, on, on the, the poverty versus the future challenge that actually we're not going to be able to get to a position where we can lean in and resolve some of those future challenges without addressing material needs of different of different types because what voice often often stems from that if if people and um, do not have the, the 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 space and security to engage um in um in thinking about the future as well as the mechanisms to engage in that conversation where they will be excluded and actually it will impede our ability to resolve those challenges because going back to point james's point around populism that's when you start to get political a political backlash um when when people feel that their basic needs um are not being uh, met we we've we've got some polling data out this week and um, we're launching our, our our new program regenerative futures which is very much in this in this territory and the, the most striking thing about it, it looks at people's attitudes and values surrounding dealing with the climate crisis. It's kind of remarkable the across the board support there is a very, very significant um, action, whatever demographic, whatever political affiliation, whatever age, the case has been won. The one issue where there was a bit of kickback, it was um, if actually resolving the climate crisis leads um, to some sort of detriment um, in terms of a higher cost of living, there would suddenly be greater, greater concerns. I think there's, there's warning signals in that. Not this is insurmountable, but it's in, important to hold those two questions together, I think. Um, going on to the, um, the, 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 the role of the state um, in, in, in all of this, what, I mean, it's, I suspect the answer is going to be all of the above, um, but what type of state do, do, do we need to be able to respond to the array of challenges that we've got? It seems to me there's, there's, there's three possible ways, broad ways in which you can approach this. There's some sort of reform of the current state where, you know, you have better governance, maybe more devolved um, governance, some opening up to, to, to wider voices in, in policy making and implementation. That's, that's sort of one category, if you like, it's sort of improvement category. The second, you can go the sort of full-on sort of Amazon-style state, learning from the sort of vaccine innovation and rollout, um, and you can deploy tech at scale um, to have a sort of very logistical um, state that can use AI to respond to needs um, in, in, in a highly flexible way. The third way is the more sort of relational route 
which is actually around how the state and the services that it, it provides, um, mainly at the local level, I would guess, can actually respond directly to people's articulated needs. Which of those three models do you, do, do you think that we should give most focus to? There will all, of course, be elements of all of them in the future, but which is the one that we should devote most, most attention and commitment to? So, Claire. Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's a lot of talk, isn't there, at the moment around levelling up, yeah. um, which has, it sort of implies a certain type of state role, I suppose. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of people certainly in the world I work in that are talking about, you know, this can't just be about physical infrastructure, it needs to be about social infrastructure, which I would agree with, as long as we're defining social infrastructure as something other than not just physical infrastructure. <laughs> By social infrastructure, I think we have to be talking about um, infrastructure that builds connection and, and relationships. So I suppose in, you know, thinking about your, your big question there, Anthony, I think we do need to be thinking about the state in a way that is um, about building social fabric, building connection um, uh, and enabling communities to kind of reclaim what is rightfully theirs. I do think there's been a kind of encroachment, whether you're talking about uh, land, buildings, whatever, um, uh, into communities um, where other people are kind of profiting and, uh, from, from things that really rightfully belong to the community. So there's something about the state playing a role in enabling communities to reclaim what is rightfully theirs. Um, that's probably a good starting point. I mean, there's plenty of other things to say, but um, I'm sure James has got some other things to add to that. <laughs> James, where are you on this? Um, I think, I suppose the thing I'd start with, it's sort of an obvious point, but one we... I think should all should always kind of remind ourselves of that the um the state we need if you like it will be unrecognizably different from the state we have um in the sense that the changes that we're seeing economically and technologically are so profound that you know, just as in the industrial revolution we still started if you like the 19th century with a state that was completely unfit for purpose in every in every possible respect to govern the economy that was emerging and we ended with one that was unrecognizably different in all kinds of ways. It's, it's mm. structures, it's cultures, it's skills, the things it did and didn't do. Um, and so I think it's worth always starting with that. Um, in yeah, and so it will be it will be radical and it's hard to place. I guess um, I don't know if I if you really force me to choose from your three sort of three options, I think there's something fascinating about the relational state and this this idea. And I do think that. One of the one of the kind of some of the qualities that feel most um, outdated in the current settlement, if you like, are the sort of technocratic, mm. is highly sort of technocratic approach to everything that is sort of as, as you kind of intimate and fire kind of the sort of Whitehall knows best. The kind of um, everything's very nar narrowly economic in its analysis. Um, the way we underplay things like behavioural insights, psychology, design, disciplines that aren't economics. Um, uh, the way that everything is overly bureaucratized. Um, I think, I mean, the, the debate about welfare, I think, is, is a fascinating example of this, where we have this um, unbelievably narrow technocratic 
debate about the welfare state and every change that's made is assessed only on the basis of um, what will be the distributional impact of this and the kind of war of the charts every time there's a change to benefits. Um, and then you get this emerging debate about questions like universal basic income, which is a very different idea, much more to kind of to points you made so far, much longer term, much more visionary in some ways, um, arguably much less efficient and much less technocratically kind of perfect than the current welfare system, but arguably sort of a good long-term goal. So I think there's something, um, I've, I've kind of used the word human to describe this new state that it just feels sort of, it's less hierarchical, it's more agile, it's more, it's kind of warmer, less technocratic, more relational. Um, and it's it's hard, I think it's a hard question because it's still emerging. And I've got the other point I've made is, this is a bit like asking someone to describe social democracy in about sort of 1910, 1920. And they probably would have got some things right and something wildly wrong. And we're sort of at that stage where you can see some of it, but, but, but not other aspects of it. It's really interesting. And obviously, the yeah, RSA has been in the universal basic income debate for, for, for some time. And actually, we ended up in it um, for that very reason, because a sense of that war of the charts, I think you described it, James, wasn't actually speaking to people's lives and needs. And actually, if you started from there, you might end up with something something different. But of course, you know, we'll come back to the question of universalism in, 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 in a moment. That's just one response to those, those individual needs. This relationalism, if you like, is um, another. And what's interesting is that this is, this is the sort of the hot topic in, in public policy debate at the moment. You know, yesterday, um, Michael Gove, who now, of course, is, is, is Secretary of State for Housing, Leveling Up and Communities, or or some order of those of those words, um, uh, essentially says that this is this is where the intellectual frontier is. This is going to be the debate of the 2020s. How you can reform um, the state through through devolution, through the, the changing um, ethos of the state, the changing way in which services deliver, where communities are brought into policy and conversation. This is the this is this is the frontier, and it's it's very difficult to, to think that that's not going to be an important part of the discussion we're going to be involved in over the next, next decade or so. But of course, it raises the question how. Um, and there are places that have innovated, you know, the, the, the Wiggins, the Barking and Dagenhams in this, in, in, in this field. Um, but where is a starting point for defining a state that starts off with people, their relationship to one another, their relationship with local services, their relationship with their, their local community? So far in your, in your work, have you seen this where, where there are things that we can spot that might be able to be sort of spread and scaled? I mean, I think, I think there are a growing number of things and you've mentioned a few, a few places and there's a kind of a, a list of, um, uh, well, a, a growing list of, of localities um, who I think are beginning to take things into their own hands and building new kind of networks of uh, kind of institutional and community-based partners to, to kind of make a place better. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think everywhere we look, there are the seeds of this sort of emerging future, um, which I think is hugely exciting. You know, you kind of go to watch it, Wigan, Barrow, uh, Stockton, um, Hartlepool. I mean, you know, you can, you can, there are, there are Plymouth, um, Liverpool, you know, you can keep going. They're, they're everywhere. I think there are, are, are these seeds. I think the, the big question is how do you, how do you nurture those seeds? 
um, how do you grow them, how do you tell the story of them um, so that other people can see them. And I was just reading um, a speech that Joseph Roundtree made at the opening of the Folk Hall, which is the kind of community centre in the model community that he built back in uh, 1904 and in it he says you know look if we can make an example of this other people will come to learn and I think there's something very important about how you start to join up the dots because I think actually a lot of this stuff is happening the state hasn't paid attention to it the state uh, you know it, the Whitehall Westminster haven't necessarily been paying attention to it because it's sort of seen as this sort of lovely fluffy community stuff but actually, I think that's really beginning to change. Um, and, um, and I think we do need to kind of invert the view of where the action is really happening. Um, I think there is a really important role for anchor institutions, places like Joseph Roundtree Foundation, other trusts and foundations, people who have assets to get behind this work. And I also think we have to be really clear that as well as um, kind of planting nurturing, growing these seeds on the ground, we also need to be very mindful of the work that's required on the kind of the hidden wiring of the system, um, the things that make it hard for these seeds to really thrive. Um, so that might be things like um, employment regulation, it might be things like how we, um, how we uh, own and rent land, um, those sort of very big questions which are really about the wiring rather than the kind of reality on the ground, I suppose the practical work on the ground. We need to do both. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting that, that you um, you reach back for um, uh, a speech from 1904, because I think we're very used to reading about social reform in particularly, I say, the, the latter half of the 19th century and the first half of the of the 20th century and, and, and seeing that at a, a, a point in history, at which, at which point in comes a social democratic state, as James was, 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 was referencing, and that history sort of ends, really. It's, it's sort of, you know, friends, charity, which is all important. But the fundamental um, job of meeting people's needs becomes this sort of this, this, this modern state. And I guess my, 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 my a question for James on this is how we take those the, the sort of millions of seeds that Sophia is describing and and go from that sort of um, innovation into something which looks more like systemic change, a sort of paradigm shift in, in policy and the state that you're describing in technology and the economy. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, maybe think there's a fantastic quote, I think, on one of your recent um, blogs, Sophia, from Arundhati Roy. Um, I think she says that something like another world is not just possible. She's on her way on a quiet day. I can hear her breathing. Yeah. Wonderful. Mm. Um, but I completely agree with this sense of um, wherever you look, it's, you know, it's not hard to find. There's just this kind of growing number of examples. Um, another, another kind of area I think is really rich is around mental health and um, emerging ideas of more relational approaches to healthcare, peer-to-peer -peer community-based healthcare. I think is fascinating as um such a different model from the NHS model, if you like, uh, that sort of emerged in the 20th century. Um, and I do think, I mean, I think there's something on this, how do you scale? Um, I, was, I became fascinated in um, the, the, move, the sort of social reform movement of around the turn of the century, around kind of late, late 1800s, early 1900s. And you get these amazing, um, uh, this emergence of these social reformers um, at the World's Fair. They, they used to exhibit at the World's Fair. And there's these great stories about, I think most people know about the World's Fair festivals that were these kind of um, huge kind of cacophonous displays of machinery and industrial breakthroughs, uh, amazing big fairs in Paris in 18, 
1990 and 1900, I think it was, where the Eiffel Tower was first unveiled. Um, but there was this uh, much less well-known was the, a kind of fringe festival of sort of policy geeks that, that was alongside the main festival um, where they exhibited ideas for how you solve the kind of emergent problems of the industrial economy. And they were they literally kind of built um, workers' cottages to show this idea of public housing um, and kind of had these big displays of ideas like social insurance um, and so on. So there's some um, something I just think really interesting in... Um, the sort of show don't tell kind of um showing people what this possible future could be like um again utopian visions play i think a fascinating role kind of throughout history and social change this kind of sense of come and see it for yourself and some of those kind of like some of the early jrf work i guess is in that space of um show people that it's possible um i suppose the only other thing i'd say is i do think it's um it's easy when you get into these debates about the relational state and devolution and so on um, uh, to figure out, it's important to say that the state, the, the central state, if you like, still has, I think, an incredibly important role to play in setting some quite firm rules. Um, and another thing I think you see throughout history is the state playing quite a kind of decisive role in things like the ban on child labour or, um, you know, I, I would say today there might be analogies in the living wage, where there are certain things that the, the state should just say, it is not okay to pay someone less than this amount. Um, and to almost set a kind of ethical framework or the boundaries within which this kind of more um, you know, devolved kind of form of government can operate. Um, so it's not, this is not a sort of, it's not free for all, if that makes sense. It's a kind of, it's definitely a different way of doing things that's more devolved and more engaging with communities. But you still need that quite decisive role, I think, from the central state on some of these ethical kind of guardrails almost. Can I can I just jump in on there because I think I think um, this uh, this this point about showing not telling is really important. I think on, on a recent RSA thing, um, Jeff Morgan talked about the fact we've got three thousand museums where we can go and look at what our past was like. But where are those equivalent spaces to look at what our futures might be like? And I think that's such a lovely analogy. You know, I want to go to my museum of the emerging future. Like I want to see that. I want to see the possibilities. And maybe we should really be thinking about that because I do think it's so important to give people an opportunity to kind of feel, experience, taste, smell what we're talking about rather than kind of writing abstract policy pamphlets about it, although that matters as well, but there is something about the, the, the tangibility of it that really matters. The other thing I just wanted to say, I think even the question of kind of how do you scale this is probably a language that relates to a very sort of industrial 20th century model of, 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 of emergence and growth and actually, you know, I think I think this concern with scale, I mean, there's, there's spread we need to be thinking about and propagation, but it's not necessarily about kind of the state saying, right, we're going to take this and we're going to scale it up. I'm not, I'm not sure that's the way it's necessarily helpful to think about this stuff. It's more about how do you spread and propagate. Um, but I also agree with James about the, the central state still has an important role. And in a way, it's almost a kind of moral state, isn't it? It's kind of you know what are the what are the boundaries of what is okay and what isn't i think related to that as well it's kind of been really clear particularly um in uh the way technology is evolving about what is public what is owned by all of us and what isn't and that feels to me like it's going to become one of the big questions whether you're talking about land uh data uh, care these things that are public goods and being really clear that they are public goods and therefore are owned by all of us. Uh, that feels quite central. 
public goods creates an imperative to have public voice as part of it, whatever the form of ownership in inverted commas may be. Just, but before we leave this, I want to just sort of touch on that because because there is a risk in you know, that the, the, the policy and social innovators of the present and futures are a different group of people um, who are being targeted by those, those 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 innovations. There is a risk of elitism at a, at a local and national level in in the round that those demonstrations. Um, in the early part of the 20th century were in some respects demonstrations by, by elites of the utopias that they wanted to see um, come, come to fruition. And so, so far, you, you touched on this earlier on in our conversation. How do we safeguard against this sort of, this, this imagined future being an elite imagined future, even if it's a very progressive elite? I think, I think the key thing is to be really clear that there isn't one imagined future, that we have to be very explicitly plural, that the future we're talking about is not owned by one person. So um, Pupil Bish has done some amazing work on decolonizing imagination. And I think there's something really key here that at every point we're asking ourselves whose voices are here um, and, and making sure that you don't, you're not, your goal isn't to create <laughs> A singular account of the future but rather you're recognizing that actually you know however we get there it's likely to be characterized by some different views that kind of we have to hold that intention um and and allow for that pluralism which I, you know i don't think again fits very comfortably into kind of very rational technocratic sort of language uh, and mental models that have informed the way we've governed uh uh, in the 20th century. So again, there's a kind of shift there to recognising pluralism, multiple perspectives, um, different voices, and that you can still move forward without needing to get to a singular account of where we're going. Yeah, just to build on that a bit, I, I really agree with that. And I think um, one of the shifts I talk about in terms of comparing the old state to the new one, if you like, is from certainty to humility in this um so almost epistemological humility, to use the happy phrase, of um, the government doesn't know best, we, and uncertainty. We, we just don't know what will turn out to be right. And the sense of kind of test, try and testing and learning to some degree, I think, is, is really interesting. Um, and it's certainly not, as, as I think I completely agree, it's, um, it's not a sort of technocratic version of here's the perfect future, here's how we get there by building the perfect welfare state. It's, um, it's a much sort of looser looser kind of conversation than that yeah i'm not gonna i'm not about to defense a sort of you know, full-throated defense of technocracy but i guess one one thing it's probably worth putting into the conversation is what one thing that the the, the post-war state tried to do patchily as it turns out is provide some level of sort of protection and universalism of of, of services including including health social security education and so forth um, and you know, to, to if you like, as sort of yin to relational, relationalism's yang, are there sort of greater universals that we should ask the state to provide alongside this sort of dispersal of voice and pluralism, experimentation? Do we need to expand the universal space um, as well so everybody can rely on certain basic um, minimums, James? Yeah, I think I think I'd say a couple of things on that. So one is, um, I think healthcare is a really interesting example on, of this of how this sort of plays out. Because I think um, in the in in my book I look at um, 
the emergence of health, public health and healthcare systems as they in, in the 20th century, um, which of course emerged to solve a specific challenge that people were dying very young as a result of communicable preventable diseases. And so we developed these systems that had precisely this kind of, if you like, old, if you like old fashioned sort of characteristics of being very top down, very hierarchical, um, and were very good at doing things like prescribing antibiotics to cure specific kind of preventable conditions, or they were very good at stopping the spread of contagious viruses, for example, um, and were very, very successful in helping us to live longer. Um, so I do think it's important that we still need those systems. Um, and there are problems that are very well solved by those kinds of methodologies, if that makes sense. Um, but those systems are limited. I guess in the book I talk about, it's almost like we've got half, half a healthcare system. But those systems aren't, are very bad actually at helping people with chronic conditions, fluctuating conditions, mental health conditions, um, because those kind of delivery models that are very top down, that aren't involving of the patient um, and aren't relational, for example, are quite, are quite bad at solving other kinds of problems, helping us be happier or more fulfilled, for example. So I think um, sometimes the answer is not to sort of replace one with the other. It's to it's to almost fill out and complement and complement. So we've got a sort of fuller toolkit. Um, but I guess I guess the other point I'd make is just that point about standards. And I do think um, the state still has a very important role to play in this question of what 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 is okay and what's not okay. What are the moral standards? Um, and I think this point about social infrastructure and digital infrastructure is fascinating as well of what, what's the role of the state in um establishing the infrastructure that makes some of this innovation possible if that makes sense and some of that will need to be quite forcefully mandated i would think because you need certain to some degree you need a shared infrastructure on which some of this stuff can take can take place i mean the state is very good at setting standards as, as, as you say it's also very good at creating generating raising resources however it does it by you know levying uh, taxes and charges or just printing money whatever 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 approach you choose to take and and it seems to me that there are there are there are two areas in particular where where you know a, a greater state presence might might be justified one is on 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 care um, at the beginning and end of life um, not only but particularly um, and the other is on economic security where where I mean, there's a huge Public discussion. Um, DRF are very involved in it. The RSA is very involved in it. The CAB, Citizens Advice Bureau, is very involved in it. Um, on the, the cut to universal credit, which is which is scheduled to happen um, imminently, and it seems to me that we do need the state to be present and present in some of those areas. Otherwise, the instability and insecurity may be too great for even sort of pluralistic relational state to be able to um, to respond to. So high. Yeah, I mean, I think I think those those two areas you you've identified, Anthony, the kind of uh, economic insecurity and, and and care are are absolutely key, um, and and I guess it goes to to James's point about you know that there is very much a role I think for the state being clear about what is and isn't okay, and that is very true I think in work. Um, so at JRF we've been doing um, a big project um, uh, which we've co-designed with uh, people um, in low wage work um, to think about what what would it take for good quality work to 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 kind of 
be a reality. And, you know, one of the big themes that come out of that is, you know, as well as there being some kind of greater security and kind of shift, I guess, towards the employee around um, uh, hours and shift, shift patterns and so on, there's also something very fundamental and human that's missing in a lot of people's working experiences which is a kind of level of dignity and respect accorded yes. to them so um so you know i think i think this 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 kind of um this focus on insecure work at the at the lower end of the labor market is absolutely essential and, and somewhere where we really need to have some very clear tram lines set out by the state about what is and isn't okay um on on care i mean yeah i it 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 blows my mind that we still treat care as something that is somehow magically off the balance sheet beyond the economy. It's free female labor. It's a gift that women have given, mainly women have given to society for too long. And it it can't, yeah, we just can't keep on thinking about it like this. We need to do something much more radical and embed care within our economic systems and start to take it very seriously as a kind of foundation of a good society. Uh, absolutely, and and this, and, and the, the the point you you just made prior to that around um, uh, dignity and status and respect and belonging and work applies to care um, equally. Absolutely. It seems to me, and and, and our, our, our lives within our communities um, as well. And if there is one thing that I think is going to derail the, the more a more sort of hopeful, optimistic agenda, it's the notion that that certain people and places feel that they're alienated and excluded, disrespected, um, lack lack status in 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 all of this. Okay, so um, we've covered an enormous amount of ground. Um, and we're having this very rich conversation um, at the same time as there are some there have been some party conferences going on. Um, the Labour Party last week, the Conservative Party um, is is this week. Um, these discussions and debates sort of touch those conferences and maybe occasionally break through. I mentioned sort of Michael Gove's comments earlier on on on, on the importance of a devolved. Um, a, a devolved approach to people and communities and, and and relationships, but it still feels a long way away from the main political discourse um, and and debate. So, what's the mechanisms? What are the mechanisms by which this can be um, accelerated, moved into the mainstream, become a more open public conversation, a more involved um, public conversation? How we can start to collectively uh, face the uh, a number of different futures, to go back to your point earlier on, Sophia, and um, together. James? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I do think to some degree, when you look at the long history, we're in that phase of, it's not coincidence that people feel like elite conversation is sort of on another planet and this kind of sense of disconnect between the sort of reality of people's day-to-day lives and the discourse that is taking place, if you like, um, at the top yeah. of politics. Um, which yeah, you, kind of similar similar happened in in previous periods of rapid change. There's that moment kind of before the, the elite sort of catch on to some degree. Um, and the other thing that's really striking, I think, is the absence of technology in a lot of these um, big political debates. Um, it kind of gets mentioned occasionally in passing, but I mean, incredibly striking. And I would presume the same will be true at the Conservative conference. Um, on some sort of signalling that the absence of conversation about the significance of what's going on technologically, I think is fascinating. Um, and the absence of some of these big issues like how do we deal with the big tech monopolies, the gig economy question and so on is, is really striking. Um, 
So yeah, <laughs> what's the answer? Um, I think to some degree it's a matter of time is part of the sort of part of the answer. And there's that there's that Max Planck quote of science precedes one funeral at a time. Um, and I've often sort of wondered if politics precedes one retirement at a time. Um, there's a sort of similar dynamic that you, to some degree you need um, new generations of thinkers to come through um, on some of these things. Um, I think the mounting, I mean, when you look throughout history, why did these questions break through? I think um, just the mounting kind of um, the sense that a problem is unsustainable um, was often the thing. So in the Industrial Revolution, often these problems were just quite literal in the sense of the mounting sewage on the banks of the Thames was the thing that forced the government to accept it needed to build public sewage systems, um, and which I always think is a nice metaphor for sort of mounting social problems, eventually forcing the government into action. Um, so that, that kind of role of people pointing out the problems, protesters, um, and kind of um, maintaining this kind of sense of public anger and frustration, um, I think is important. Um, I don't know, and I also just think it needs leadership at some point in the sense that some of the um, big breakthrough moments in history took, came about when a leader stepped above party politics to some degree, it kind of reforming leaders on the left and right, like Teddy Roosevelt, for example, um, and to some degree stepped out of the kind of the boxes of left and right um, and kind of took the, took the challenge head on. Um, so I think to some degree we need people like that to emerge, not within the boxes of party politics, but to some degree sort of above above them. Um, so it's, it's sort of both bottom up and, and top down in that sense. So James, in your book, I think it is, the key moment of change when it came to the polluted River Thames was when the, when the aroma became so unbearable in the Houses of Parliament that they had to change it because it became inoperable. Um, yeah, there's a great moment where Disraeli literally runs from the runs from a committee room in the House of Parliament with the handkerchief clutched to his nose, um, because the smell from the Thames was so obnoxious, and um, and it wasn't much later that he led a bill through Parliament to raise money for the embankments, which eventually solved the problem of sewage in the Thames. So it's a it's a great metaphor. So so far, how can we get politics to act before sewage is washing into the Houses of Parliament? <laughs> Well, I mean, if you, you know, when you're talking about trying to make it real and tangible and something people can get their heads around, I mean, there's nothing more um, vivid than that than that image, is it? So, I mean, you know, I do think there's an important point there about um, people with assets, organisations with assets, like Joseph Brown Foundation, like the other trusts and foundations, need to really work hard to back this kind of work, this work that is showing how things could be different. There's um, a brilliant um, comment, uh, I think it's Rob Bell made it saying, um, uh, despair is thinking tomorrow is the same as, is going to be the same as today. And there's something about trying to kind of shake that sense of fatalism and say, actually, there is another way that things can be different and look, we can make it happen. I think the other thing is brutally, elites need to catch up, this work is happening. So they need to get out there. It's not, it's not actually for people doing the work to have to make the case to the elites. The elites need to catch up. The world is changing and um, they'll get left behind if they don't get with the, the programme. Um, and I suppose the only other thing I'd say is, you know, it goes back to something James alluded to at the beginning of this conversation around the democratic kind of mechanisms themselves. I do think um, David Runciman's proposal of... of um, uh, uh, enabling everybody over the age of six to vote would have a profound impact 
on the uh, nature of political debate and the kinds of issues we're talking about. And I think there's a very serious point here about how do you actually bring future generations into a kind of politician's mind who's going to vote for me kind of mentality because actually if we don't start to think in a way about legacy and future generations I think it's going to be very very difficult to shift the dial on uh, the kind of focus of contemporary political debate. Mm. I think that's a great note to end on there's no despair here there's optimism but also um, lots of sort of um, practical pointers to um, what change might look like and the underlying ethics of that change which are deeply um, pluralistic. We could continue this discussion all afternoon, but I'm, I'm afraid that is all we have time for. Um, to those of you watching, I, I highly recommend uh, James' book, End State. Um, I hope our conversation has given you a taste of some of the um, brilliant ideas and provocations it contains. And you'll find links to James's and Sophia's work in the chat bar. And if you head over to the RSA website, you can find out more about our Regenerative Futures programme, Future of Work, Stitch in Time, which is about bringing the voice of future generations into our, our public discourse. And while you're there, you can also find much more info on our upcoming RSA events and podcasts, as well as news from our policy teams and from our Global Fellowship Change Maker Network. And if you enjoyed the conversation today, you might also be interested in our recent event producing partnership with the National Lottery Community Fund, exploring community imagination practice, who gets to imagine the future. You'll find the link to that in the chat as well. Thank you again to James and to Sophia. Thoroughly enjoyable conversation and thoroughly enlightening. Uh, appreciate it, um, both of you. And thank you all watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.